0: Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. The attention economy has been a hot topic during COVID. What people are doing when they are not engaged in work or possibly teaching their kids is of great interest to both advertising companies and Wall Street analysts as they want to know where the attention of viewers are these days. It turns out quite a few eyeballs are landing on gaming screens rather than catching the latest show through a streaming service or broadcast television. Candidly, gaming statistics took me by surprise. Verizon reported gaming internet traffic has gone up 75% since the beginning of quarantine, and streaming service Twitch saw a 20% increase from the previous year in the hours of content consumed since the lockdown. Our guest today is Lindsay Paz. She's a researcher at the Technology Policy Institute. Lindsay recently published a paper on eSports titled The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Gaming Galaxy. In this paper, Lindsay explains how gaming reaches valuable audiences for advertisers and Wall Street is also paying attention. Breaking down how much time people are spending on gaming, especially men in the 18 to 34-year-old range, she also notes that 42% of eSports viewers in North America don't play the actual games, but they watch other players as spectators. That statistic blew me away. Lindsay does a great job of walking through the reasons on why more people are gaming and what they are turning their attention to in the gaming world. Besides her research at the Technology Policy Institute, Lindsay is also the Director of Communications. She holds an MS in Public Policy and a BS in Decision Science from Carnegie Mellon University. She's also a proud alumni of the women's basketball team. Lindsay is also an avid gamer herself, where she has been compelled to do more research and write, which brought about her first paper. So, Lindsay, welcome to Explain to Shane. I always learn when you're talking. And my colleague, Will Rao is going to join us today. When did gaming break out of the basement as I think about it and become such a significant part of the entertaining landscape? Some stereotypes say gaming
1: never broke out of the basement, but that is just not true. The reality is a much more robust industry. Gaming and competition have obviously been popular since the dawn of time, but video gaming really started ticking off with arcades in the 70s. And then this sort of new scene that we see with esports and competitive gaming really rose to prominence with the launch of Fortnite three years ago. And that interest in the competitive gaming landscape is really what kind of changed the space. Suddenly, not so suddenly, I should give more credence to the platforms that were there before, but There were certain platforms and things that became much more mainstream with the rise of Fortnite. and Gaming culture kind of grew from that. The kind of unique aspect of gaming is that people can interact when they're off platform through watching streamers. So rather than that kind of lean back experience that we have in television where we're just sort of sitting passively and watching, streaming offers a chance for people to actually interact with the games that they play and like in a way that's not as intense as playing them. So that was one of the things that kind of brought this space into greater prominence was this chance to follow different games and follow different streaming personalities on games that people liked without having to intensely engage with the actual game. And then from that, a whole kind of world has emerged. Communication tools, language habits, platforms like Twitch, where people watch streams, or Discord, where people communicate about games, have really come to dominance, and as this world becomes kind of more involved and gets more tools and more popularity, more people are able to find spaces to enter into it. It's become a very diverse community with all kinds of interests that even overlap into things like Dungeons and Dragons and real world things. So this landscape has grown to epic proportions here as basically everyone can find something that they're interested in now. And it's you know even more accessible with the wonderful internet. So that
0: was what kind of has been happening the past three or so years. I keep waiting for there to be a game where I get to fill my closet with lovely things.
1: (laughs) Those do exist. There's a lot of try-on games now that stores are starting to introduce, especially as virtual reality becomes more prominent in the next maybe five to 10 years would be my sort of uneducated guess. That will become a big thing is virtual dressing rooms. I'm excited about that too. Run the runway,
0: but with a dressing room, how great is that? Actually, for quite a while at the Consumer Electronics Show, I can't wait for that to return. They would have these mirrors that you, would, you know, wouldn't have to try on clothes, but they could, you know, replicate the outfit as it would fit your form. And I was thinking this might be the year that that might be a real thing. But now they're going to have to augment it so it actually happens on my computer. So God love them. But back exactly. To the <laughs> uh, so break this apart for me a little bit in your paper. You explain the difference between the three main gaming platforms, the console, the PC, and the mobile. So tell me what the difference is in in kind of how you play depending on what form factor you're using.
1: Yeah, so it's sort of similar to how Netflix is available across a TV, computer, or phone and optimized depending on what device you're using for that device. So it's, for the most part, is pretty similar to that. Mobile games are a little bit of a category of their own because PC and console games, you have the opportunity to sit down and kind of play for hours at a time and devote attention to it. Mobile games can be a little bit more passive attention getters or in between. If you've ever ridden the Metro in the morning, you'll see people playing all kinds of games on their phone and they're not necessarily, you know, open world, developed storyline, massive character games. The more complicated games tend to be played on PC and console. And games can also be played across platforms. So Fortnite, for example, which is super popular, can be played on all three. But what Fortnite does is when it sorts players, it sorts them into buckets and into games depending on what input they are using. So PC players will play with other PC players, Xbox with Xbox, PlayStation with PlayStation, and mobile with mobile. So then you have kind of an equality across fields of input. There are some games that Go across devices. The most popular one right now is Call of Duty Warzone, in which Xbox players can play against PlayStation players and PC players. Now, there is still a sorting hierarchy for that, but for the most part, you can, if you're in a group of friends and one of you has a PC and one of you has an Xbox and one of you has a PlayStation, you can actually all play together in Call of Duty Warzone. That type of format is not as popular. One of the reasons why is because it's difficult to do and it takes up a lot of space and computing power, but it is as we become more of a society that has devices on hand all the time, that kind of cross-platform play is becoming more and more common in games and especially online play is becoming super common in games. We went from you know, going to a physical store to buy a disc to load it in and play it, in which there was kind of a linear path where you would load the disc, you would complete missions and you would reach an end to playing online where it's more of you know, a pickup basketball game where you can go and you can play in the park with different people every day. And sometimes you win, sometimes you don't, but it's always the same game. There are some linear challenges and getting better, but for the most part, it's kind of a one-off occurrence where you can go in and play the game.
0: So I hope that clarifies a little bit. It does. It also makes me wonder how much just the industry—not necessarily gaming, but you know—tech learns a lot from the way people interact with the form factors and the different software. And you know, and, and then working across the different platforms, there's probably got to be some interesting statistics that come off that. But that's for another podcast someday. <laughs> Integrating okay. all that is a challenge. <laughs> I went to the Michigan 500, and I would just like watch all the statistics these guys were pulling off these cars. I was like, wow! Oh, and then I then I have better tires. That's awesome. <laughs> Hopefully. So the other thing that I am still blown away with is eSports as, you know, just the idea of people viewing it. So I'm wrapping my head around the idea of stadium gaming and watching other people play. Give me some data points on this. I realize it's so serious that they even have Wall Street analysts that are full-time in this space. So
1: there's all different types of levels of stadium play ranging from amateur individual tournaments to professional team tournaments. The most popular one Globally, every year is the League of Legends World Championship Final. There's actually, if you are interested, you can go to YouTube and look up their opening ceremony. They did a really awesome 3D dragon that flew over this massive stadium of people with crazy performances and all this stuff to open up their League of Legends worlds. That was very cool. And that drew over, and it draws consistently for the past three or so years. It's drawn around 100 million or over unique viewers around the world. And that one is kind of the pinnacle of success when it comes to having these tournaments. Here in the U.S., we do have professional leagues of gaming. We have the professional NBA 2K League, and we have the professional Overwatch League. And they have followed the same model as traditional sports with broadcast rights, and they do have in-stadium tournament play. And those are almost almost a direct one-to-one to what we would think of a traditional football or basketball or any other pro sport. And then you have a whole other slew of professional tournaments where individuals can enter, teams can enter, all kinds of things. There's actually been some popular ones at Madison Square Garden and all the major venues and Staples Center in LA. And those are all set up pretty similarly where you have people down in the center where the field of play typically is, a bunch of computers set up, a bunch of software, and all of it is broadcast on basically huge screens for the audience. In the US, we haven't had anything that's been quite as successful as the League of Legends World Championship Series, but there's been a lot of experimentation. And I think in the next couple of years, there'll be some type of format that will emerge that's kind of accessible, that has broadcast rights, that sees a lot of prominent and important sponsorships, that plays on different known platforms for consuming media, all that stuff. I think that's going to really take off in the next couple of years and kind of get the kinks worked out a bit. But one thing I will say is it's far more accessible than it seems. I know it seems overwhelming, but I always think about the time that I had to explain baseball to a friend from Russia and how just bonkers it seemed (laughs) to try to figure out how to intelligently explain what was happening in baseball. And these games are much the same. You pick up a few key pointers or a few key things and you can follow along with what's happening. And the crowds at them also helped because they ooh and ah at the appropriate moments. (laughs) So I attended a tournament where I wasn't exactly sure what was going on. It was an amateur tournament, about 10,000 people. And top prize, I think, was $3,000. And I can't say that I followed perfectly, but it was really exciting. And I (laughs) sat glued in my chair for about three hours. (laughs) Time flies by. There's these big shiny screens and lots of stuff happening and great commentary and it's an immersive tech experience. So they're fun. we Will,
0: join us here in this conversation.
2: Yeah, sure. So Lindsay, I'd love to continue this conversation about eSports as kind of a deviation from the more traditional sports, or at least what we call traditional here in the US. So you also mentioned that you had an experience explaining baseball to somebody from Russia. And that reminded me of when I was studying abroad in China in 2018. And when I was there, I lived with a Chinese student who was studying at the university that I was visiting. And I remember so vividly when his hometown team from a province just north of Beijing won China's National League of Legends Championship. Mm-hmm. I can tell it was it was like one of the top five happiest moments of his life. Like it reminded me <laughs> when the Philadelphia Eagles won the Super Bowl in 2018. You know, it's a, a giveaway. I'm an Eagles fan, but you know, tears <laughs> in his eyes, shouting, dancing around the whole ordeal that I had done just a couple months earlier in the Super Bowl. So You think that. American esports fandom is ever going to reach the likes of China or South Korea, per se, just as an example, uh, especially in a stadium environment? Or do you not really expect this type of buy in from American audiences?
1: Well, so that totally depends on the development of the league. Part of what's happening right now, and part of the reason why here in the U.S. we love teams so much, is not only because of their regionality, but because people fall in love with players. I've been a basketball player my entire life, and I adore the NBA. I love the sport. So that makes it easy, first of all. But secondly, I can't ever even pick a team because I have like 20 players that I follow and people that I'm interested in seeing win and villains that I'm interested in seeing lose. And that kind of character development is definitely possible in esports. We already have sort of the regionality aspect. But to be honest, I think that people fall in love with games in a different way than they fall in love with their home cities and therefore their home sports teams. I think it's very transnational. There's no real geographic barriers. So I think it'll be interesting to see how that develops into a true fandom. One of the things that I feel is sort of lacking in the space of professional teams right now is personality development. We don't get to see a lot of professional players outside of their Twitch streams really develop a character and who they're playing when they're actually competing in these games and stuff like in the NBA and in the NFL, you know, we have the trash talking, we have the heroes and the villains and the people that started playing when they were three and were destined to become, you know, professional football players their entire lives versus the person who picked it up in 11th grade because they grew eight inches overnight. So we learn all of these stories, which is what helps us fall in love with these athletes. And I don't think that the space has done a great job of capitalizing off of that in an organized fashion. What it has done is allow open access to these people and. I think that is why we see a rise in popularity of the Just Chatting channel on Twitch. So for those of you out there, Twitch is a service where you can watch streamers play games, but there is a function where streamers can kind of go offline from the games and it's called Just Chatting and they chat with all of their viewers. And that's how they kind of develop a personality and a fan base is by letting people get you know that one-on-one interaction with them. Or in the case of the famous streamers, it's thousands on one, but still... There's always that chance that your favorite streamer is going to answer your question and you fall in love with him because of that. I'll be anxious to see. I want them to develop that part of gaming a little bit more. I would be anxious to see teams built around signature players or personalities, kind of like a captain's choosing teams format Mm -hmm. and see how that works versus region-based formats. I'm not sure that gaming has to abide by the region-based format here. And in fact, I think they have the opportunity to do something completely different. And that's what I would like to see. Whether that works or not, it's still a mystery. But I do think that it's going to take some more celebrity power from the streamers themselves to actually build that fandom in the same way that it is in Asia.
2: Yeah, definitely. I also wondered if association with big telecoms industry leaders, like the, the incumbents who are kind of already entrenched, can... Help esports teams get off the ground. The reason I say that is because, you know, in my home city of Philadelphia, Comcast, a big Philadelphia based telecoms provider, is building an esports arena two blocks away from the Philadelphia Eagles Stadium and the Philly Stadium, 76ers Flyers, like that huge sports complex that is just such an icon for Philly sports, is now going to have a fifth arena and it's going to be esports. And I definitely wouldn't be opposed to getting into the Philadelphia team for esports, but I just don't know that much about it outside of my work in the tech industry. And so well, I wonder if the average person who does not know about tech policy would even follow something like that or, or know that it's happening.
1: Well, and that's where I think that the personality of the people is very important. I mean, things like Ninja doing the Masked Singer, that syndicated show on Fox, those are the types of things that kind of help maybe older people break into that market. But in terms of when we talk about younger people, they're the ones that are going to be supporting this market. One thing that I'll be curious about is as those younger people grow older, if they'll shift to kind of more traditional media formats or if they'll actually stay involved in gaming. As we see now, people who are in their later 30s who kind of grew up with the console cycle and playing PlayStation and Xbox as a form of entertainment when they were very young are still sticking with gaming now. And now they're having kids and they're getting their kids involved with gaming. So what you're saying, Will, might be a more of a 10 or 15 years down the line type development of regional cities and big partnerships and these big ventures. For now, I think that the crowd is a little bit more agnostic when it comes to actually attending in person, particularly after COVID, or supporting a certain region because of where they live. The data does seem to suggest that people either follow games or they follow personalities. So I'll be curious to see how that winds up incorporating into a more professional industry. But as of right now, the kind of hometown stadium aspect doesn't seem as important.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. I also wonder what the general consensus is on labor in esports, you know, like professional sports as a form of, of labor rather, because the NFL, NBA, and NHL have these huge players unions with enormous sway over league policy. You know, they can determine salary caps, they can determine rules, they can even have a say in the hiring of referees. So have professional gamers organized themselves like this yet? Is there kind of like a a self-actualization going on where they realize how much power they have in the industry or has that not happened yet? And if not, do you foresee it happening?
1: There is definitely a big undercurrent of how do we organize ourselves? That's in several different capacities. So there certainly is an issue of professional players and these types of labor unions. I'm not sure if any of you saw this bit of news, but there was a professional player. And to be quite honest, I can't remember the team or the game at all. But I do know that he was kicked off the team for showing support for Hong Kong protests because one of the team's sponsors was a Chinese-based company that was against the Hong Kong protests. And we saw kind of similar ripplings across the NBA when that was all happening. So this wasn't a terribly big surprise. And there's been other incidents of, you know, players training for 12 hours a day and just getting physically ill and It is mentally taxing to spend that long staring at a screen, especially when you're trying to improve upon a craft that's very difficult. (laughs) So there have been rumblings at several different points about labor unions, and that's just from the player side. There have been similar rumblings among developers and game illustrators and all of those things. The gaming industry is a little strange because the communities built around the games will happily police the games and the game formats. So what I mean is if, for example, EA Sports came out with basically a pay to win game a couple years ago, and it went over horribly, people were so angry that EA would have the audacity basically to say, you need to pay to beat this game. You can't get the powers that you need to beat this game. That defeats the whole purpose of you know competitively playing something. You're supposed to do it based on skill, not based on dollar amounts. So the gaming community has some sway over how games are developed in that way. They're very quick to let developers know what they don't like, but developers themselves and professional players have kind of very little sway over how they run their organizations. So I've read horrible stories about particularly women who have worked when they're eight and a half months pregnant, or even one woman gave birth early because of the stress she was under at her job, or there's no contract negotiations for illustrators in games. So they have to basically bounce from freelance job to freelance job because they can't find a full-time job with benefits. And there is a slew of labor issues within the industry. It grew really big, really fast. And now they're starting to come to light and everybody's sort of starting to figure out that this could be a prevalent issue in the next two to five years as this industry grows even more can't say that I know exactly what's going to happen with that, but I will say that when you look at different labor issues across not only professional gaming, but game developers, streaming services haven't worked out contracts with who they pay to stream yet. That's still kind of up in the air. There's a lot of different ways that I think that the industry is going to change as they figure out these models in the next couple of years, especially.
2: Okay. That makes a lot of sense to me. Shane, I will turn it back over to you so that we can address this elephant in the room with the Apple Fortnite issue.
0: Walk through what's going on with Apple and Fortnite. Ah,
1: yes. So, (laughs) Fortnite is developed by Epic Games, and Epic Games kind of has this history of, I suppose you can say, wanting to fight for the little guy. Part of the context is Epic Games used to sell its games through a platform called Steam, Steam was a lot like a physical game store where you would walk in and buy a disc. Instead, you would log on to Steam and you would pay to download a copy of a game. When that happened, Steam would take a 30% cut. Epic Games said, we don't like that. And they created their own storefront called Epic Game Store, where they now release not only their titles, but other developers' titles at only a 12% cut. So Epic Games has this history of wanting to eradicate the amount of sharing that happens in the gaming industry. So Apple has the same 30% cut on its iOS store for any in-game digital purchases that are made. Digital purchases in Fortnite is things like digital currency, which in Fortnite are called V-Bucks, that you can use to unlock special items or buy battle passes or other things. They offer, through the Apple Game Store, an option to pay for this digital currency. Epic Games did not like that Apple was taking a 30% cut of those payments and decided to offer a separate option where it would reroute users to their storefront, the Epic Games Store, in order to buy this currency in-app, knowing that it was going to cause problems with Apple and violate their terms of agreement. (laughs) So Epic definitely got what it asked for. Apple has stated its rules and other app developers follow those rules, and Epic did not, but they were expecting this response. So they had prepared already litigation against Apple and Google, who has the same 30% cut on their store, and are now trying to fight to get that lowered for app developers. So with that, Apple removed Fortnite from its game store and then said that after August 28th, it would no longer support Unreal Engine, which is Epic Games' way of allowing app developers to build new apps. Unreal Engine is used for a highly significant amount of gaming apps out there and it is supported across all the major platforms. But with Apple's threat to remove it, that means that not only will Fortnite be inaccessible, but several other games will be inaccessible. Epic has now filed an emergency injunction saying that Apple cannot remove Unreal Engine as it is a app developer tool that a lot of smaller third-party app developers rely on and that it was extremely unfair. Microsoft then came out in support of that and said that Apple's actions towards Unreal Engine were not fair, particularly to smaller game developers. And now everybody is just very mad at each other.
0: Fair. We'll be curious to see where these two titans of their industries end up coming out on on this. Going back for another moment on eSports, so those who are interested in possibly following this as fall comes in and there's no college football, maybe like me, (laughs) where do we learn about all this? Where do we go find these guys? Honestly, the the easiest platform is Twitch.
1: There are tons of game streams out there. It is a little bit overwhelming, but you can always use their sorting functions to find who's the most popular at different times or what game is the most popular if you wanted to try to find that out. There was a new game released about a month ago called Fall Guys, which is really fun to watch. It's this little competition game where all the people are shaped like eggs and they run around in this almost Candyland type environment. And one of the most popular streamers on Twitch could not get a win in it. And it's a pretty basic game. He could not get a win in it for around 10 days. And he wound up being teased and trolled by the ESPN account and the developer account Fall Guys. And that was extremely popular on Twitch. He had two hundred fifty to 300,000 viewers for days on end at the same time. So when you see things like that on the main page, you know that that's what you should be watching. Yeah, Twitch is great. It's easy to use. You can figure out what's the most popular and go from there. You can find streamers that you think are funny. The guy who's playing Fall Guys is actually hilarious. And I like watching his some of his just chatting videos because he's a goofball. It's like YouTube, but less overwhelming (laughs) because it's focused. So yeah, Twitch and then I always follow ESPN esports, Bleacher Report Esports, those accounts on Twitter, Polygon, which is gaming publication created by The Verge. That's a good one. They write about all kinds of entertainment and culture stuff as well. Yeah, but there's there's lots of good news outlets out there and lots of good reporters who also write about it and make it really fun and interesting. So it's a very fun and bright world to be involved in, very colorful.
0: Well, I know you wrote your paper, it came out in June, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Gaming Galaxy. Are you going to be updating us throughout the year, or the quarters on how things are going with gaming since you piqued people like my interest?
1: Absolutely. That's my plan. I'm working on an op-ed that should be out for publication in about the next month. I've already started ideas for the second paper, and then I have a semi-regular blog cycle. I just had published one about a month ago on the impact of COVID in gaming, which has been huge, as I'm sure all of you can imagine.
0: I've had one friend who was a mother who told her child, like, End of February, that she would not buy him a gaming console. And she said she lasted one day during (laughs) COVID and said, We're going to Best Buy.
1: It can teach a lot of good skills, too. It's also a good way to kind of hang out with your friends
0: without hanging out with your friends, especially during this time. Well, Lindsay, thanks for joining us today. We look forward to learning more and keeping up with what you're doing in the esports space. Yes, thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify. Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.